If you will, take your Bible and turn to Exodus chapter 24. Exodus chapter 24. If you're using a pew Bible, where we'll begin reading is on page 65 of that pew Bible. We'll begin reading in verse 12 in just a moment. As you're making your way there, um, just a, a couple other things I wanted to mention with regard to membership at Gray Road. The first is that if you are a member of Gray Road, that uh, next Sunday evening at 5.30, right here in the auditorium, we will have uh, our next members meeting. So we will sing praise together, and then we will hear what God is doing and, and check on things uh, and, and like finances and other things. But please make plans uh, to be here next week uh, at 5.30 for that. Um, I hear that there's some type of sporting contest that may want to lead you astray from said members meeting. But they're not that good this year anyway. So just come on to the, uh, to the members meeting. Uh, neither are the Titans. All right? So... Uh, so Exodus 24, oh, the other thing that if you've been coming along for a while, maybe you're relatively new to us, um, we have our next Discovering Church membership class. It begins Wednesday night. It'll run four Wednesday nights beginning this Wednesday night uh, at a room that I don't have memorized in uh, room 117 down the hallway here. So this hallway snakes around and uh, room 117 is where we will be. Now, coming to that class is not a commitment to joining Gray Road. Uh, it is a commitment to learning more about Gray Road. Uh, but if you want to join Gray Road Baptist Church, you must come to the class. You see that? So there's a difference. You're not committed if you come, but if you're going to commit, you must come. That's basically what I'm saying. All right. Uh, so uh, not necessarily this time. It may not work out for your schedule this time. Uh, we do that class a few times a year. But uh, anyway, I'll leave it with that. Exodus chapter 24. We're going to begin reading in verse 12, and we will read uh, through chapter 25, verse 8. All right? This is what the Spirit says. The Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and wait there, that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment which I have written for their instruction. So Moses rose with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up into the mountain of God. And he said to the elders, wait here for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud, was, cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now, the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. The Lord said to Moses, "'Speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution.'" From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me, and this is the contribution that you shall receive from them, gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, 
oil for the lamp, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and stones for setting for the ephod and for the breastplate. And let them make a sanctuary for make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Let's pray together. Our Father, we come asking for your help this morning. Help to understand why it is that we have what we have regarding the tabernacle. We pray your spirit will illumine our hearts and minds so that we understand, so that we learn, so that we have a deeper sense of awe and love for you. We pray you will be glorified, that your church will be strengthened, and that your lost people will come home today. We pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. Now, if you are on our weekly prayer letter email list, you know that what we are covering is essentially from chapter 24, verse 12, all the way through chapter 27. Uh, There are a couple of bits that are beyond 27 that I'll need to pull into what we're doing here, Um, but that is essentially the ground we're going to cover. One of the most important of the spiritual disciplines, kind of the first spiritual discipline, if you will, for the Christian life is taking in the Bible, uh, reading it, studying it, hearing it, meditating on it, because God has given us the words that we need in order to know Him and know how to live for Him. So, some people, and one of the a good goal in our taking in of the Bible is actually to read the Bible all the way through. Now, some people do this every year as a matter of habit. They read the Bible through in a year. Some people take two or three years. Some of you are on an even longer term than that. Uh, I, I learned about uh, someone recently who has a Ph.D. in theoretical chemistry, whatever that means, and he read the whole Bible in a, a few weeks. The pace isn't actually what's important. The understanding is what's important. And so we ought to be seeking to understand what God says about Himself, about His world. But the reality is, is that the newer you are to the Bible, the harder some of it is to understand on that first time through, isn't it? I mean, just take the book of Exodus, for example. You start out and things are going great as far as your understanding is concerned. Uh, God calls Moses, and then we have these plagues, and then we have... Uh, the escape from Egypt, and then coming through the Red Sea, and they arrive at Mount Sinai, and you're like, I've got this Bible reading thing down. And then you get to the case laws in chapters 21 to 23, and they, many of those things leave you scratching your head, don't they? You're like, I understand the words here, but this is totally foreign to me. And then, oh, then you come to chapter 25, and you know what you have? Building plans. In verbal form. Now, I want you to imagine that you want to build a house. And so you hire an architect. And you tell that architect the kinds of things that you want. And uh, he goes away and he comes back and you meet with him sometime later. Uh, And then he comes to the meeting and has nothing with him. 
And you're like, um, where are the drawings? He said, oh, no, 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 there aren't any drawings. I'm just going to tell you what I'm going to do. Let me tell you about every, spe- every specification, every measurement, every everything. And you sit there, and it doesn't take long before your eyes begin to glaze over, does it? Because footers and rebar and uh, a two by what? You know, I mean, and you're just going, and, and what kind of screws were those? And what kind of nails were those? And what, and what, what? And sometimes when you come to a section like chapter 25 to 27 of Exodus, it may feel like your eyes are glazing over a bit because you're reading about cubits and telons and calyxes and like this is not measurement. This isn't even as bad. I mean, this is even worse than the metric system, right? Where's the good old American Bible? Just tell me in inches. How many is it? And so you read it, and your eyes start to glaze over, not because you don't want to understand it, actually because you do want to understand it, and you can't quite picture it. Now, the good thing is, in today's world, there are lots of images that you can look at to kind of get a sense of what different things may have looked like. Uh, There was a man in our congregation in Nashville named Lloyd, and he actually built a scale model of the tabernacle, and it sat on a table in uh, the church library. So there are these different helpful things uh, to look at, but in the end, I am not as convinced that being able to picture everything that's written is the point. Obviously, it was important, and we'll find out why. But I'm not sure it's the thrust of what we're to get out of this, why this was written down for us to read all these many years later. It's not so that we'll go out and uh, reenact this. I think the point is to actually understand what, is, what God is saying and why he is saying it. You see, when God calls Moses, he's sent to, to go in and, and speak with Pharaoh and demand that he release the people of Israel. He tells Moses that he is going to bring his people to himself, that he's going to, be, he's going to rescue them, he's going to be with them, and they are going to worship on this mountain. Well, now they've been rescued. They've been brought out. They've been brought to this mountain. They're worshiping. But somewhere, someone may have been asking, what happens when we leave the mountain? I mean, God is obviously on this mountain. We look at it. It's burning. There's clouds. There's thunder. There's all this. But what happens when we pick up the camp and head toward the promised land? Are we going to be leaving God? Do we need to come back to this mountain in order to worship him, in order to hear his words? Will we need to send people on journeys to do this? I mean, God said he'll be with us. How can that be if he's on the mountain and we're wandering through the desert? And you see, that, that, that actually would make sense in the ancient mindset because in the ancient world, gods were tied to very particular places. And this God is obviously on this mountain. So how how do we know he'll be with us? Well, that kind of question isn't actually written down, but God answers it without the question being answered. And he answers it in the plans for the tabernacle because these aren't just building plans. God doesn't need a place. You understand that? 
God doesn't need a place. He fills heaven and earth. He is omnipresent. He isn't looking for a place that he can actually live. What he does in these building plans is he gives a gift from himself to his people to assure them, I am with you. I am your God. You are my people. The point of all of this is that God dwells with his people on his terms. God dwells with his people on his terms. So the first thing I want us to do is actually to think about God himself. We must remember who this God is. So if you just go back to the beginning in your mind, back to the, not the beginning of Exodus, but the beginning beginning, back to Genesis chapter 1. There, in the creation account, there are three phrases that are repeated multiple times that tell us something about this God. The three phrases are, and God said, and it was so, God saw that it was good. All right, those three phrases. The first two tell us that God is a creator of all things. He is the creator of God, all things. And God said, and it was so. When God speaks, things come into being. That doesn't very often happen even in our own homes, does it? We say things like, clean your room, take out the trash. But we can't quite say, and it was so, just immediately. But not God. When God speaks, things happen. Things that could not have possibly been in existence come into existence. He creates out of nothing with his words. And then that last phrase, and God saw that it was good, tells us that actually God is the judge of all things. He's not just the creator of all things. He's the judge of all things. So God's word is the first word, the creating word, and God's word is the last word. The evaluating word, God sees that his creation is good. That seeing is not just he put his eyes on it. It means he evaluated. Creation is good because God says. So just in the creation account, we learn that God is a creator. He is separate from his creation. He is not part of it. He is separate from it. And God is the judge of all creation. He is superior to it. Judges have the superior position. They have the authority. He is separate, and He is superior. And in the realm of systematic theology, we call this God's transcendence. He transcends. He is separate. He is superior. He is other than us. Isaiah chapter 40 tells us that God sits above the earth and that we're like grasshoppers. Isaiah 57 says he dwells in the high and lofty place. Isaiah 66, heaven is his throne. Psalm 113 reads, the Lord is high above all nations and his glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God who is seated on high, who looks far down on the earth, heavens and the earth? He has to look down to get to the heavens. 
This is God's separateness, his superiority, his otherness, his transcendence. He is far above all things. And this is pictured even in uh, Exodus as, as God reveals himself in a great cloud of smoke and a blazing fire. There is no other God who does this kind of thing. Somebody has to make a little statue so we can say, well, this, this is what we think God looks like. But not Yahweh, not this God. You couldn't even handle his true essence. And so he just shows you that he is separate, he is superior, he is other, he is fire, he is cloud, he is glorious. It's interesting the way that people talk about being in God's presence these days, isn't it? One would think that to be in God's presence would be a bit like being at a pep rally. That when you leave God's presence, I mean, you are revved up, you are pumped up. But, it's inter- but, but in the Bible, when people enter the presence of God, they're actually bowed down. They, are, they, don't, they don't walk away cheering. They walk away trembling. If you, just, just a couple of pages back, after the Ten Commandments are given, we read this in Exodus 20, 18 and 19. Now, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. That's what it's like to be in God's presence. To behold our God seated on the throne. Come, let us adore him. It is to bow down. It is to tremble. It is to be shaken to the very core of who you are. To actually realize that you are in this God's presence. Yes, we come into his presence with thanksgiving in our hearts and we give him praise, but I don't think we dance a jig to it. The Bible never wants us to take the presence of God lightly, but always soberly, always with a very clear mind about who it is we are coming near to. And at the end of chapter 24, we see more of this, don't we? The people have to stay at the bottom. Joshua can only wait, go so far. Even Moses has to sit and wait. And he waits for six days, and he makes no move until God says it. Because one does not simply go into God's presence. You know, in the movie adaptation of The Lord of the Rings, there's this council uh, that they're trying to decide what to do with the ring because they don't want it to fall into enemy hands. And it's decided they have to go into enemy territory to destroy it. And and the enemy territory is called Mordor. And and one of the, the men, Boromir, says, one does not simply walk into Mordor. Why? It is dangerous. It is guarded by these creatures called orcs. It literally burns with evil.
Well, that's fantasy literature. Well, here's reality. One does not simply walk into the presence of God. Because it burns not with evil but with holiness. And no one may enter. This is the God who is speaking. Do not domesticate this God. Do not bring him down. Do not put him on your level. Do not make him ordinary. He is other. He is separate. He is superior. He is transcendent. He is glorious in the heavens. And the reason I make that point because, is because of this. These chapters are more awe-inspiring when you remember who's saying this. Who's saying, make me a sanctuary that I may dwell with you. It's more wonderful and more trim. It's more sobering. It's more awesome, quite frankly, because of who this God is. And this God, secondly, dwells with his people. That's what actually the word tabernacle points to. Now, it's a special word that we use for this particular structure, but the, but the word itself just means a home. The Mishkan were all over the place. There were homes everywhere. The other word for it is just the word tent. Not a special tent, just a tent. Like all the other tents in the camp of Israel... All these tents spread out. And God said, I'll, I'll build me one of those. I'm, I'm going I'm to do that. So this separate, superior, transcendent, glorious God is saying, I'm going to come close. I'm going to pitch my tent among you. You cannot come up the mountain to me but I will come down the mountain to you. That's amazing. I mean, in essence, that's the story of the whole Bible. You cannot go up the mountain to him. He comes down the mountain to us. And so, we launch into these chapters, God begins by having it, telling Moses to tell people to take up an offering. It was apparently the, the, the Baptist church. So it was, uh, it was take up an offering, take up gold and silver and bronze and take everything that he's going to mention in regards to the tabernacle. And he says, the heart of him who is willing, tell them. Because you see, this is not some drudgery. The, the people are, it's actually a privilege that God lets them give. God doesn't need their gold. God doesn't need their silver. He doesn't need their goat skins. He owns the goat. And yet God graciously allows his people to give so that his dwelling place can be built. And friends, our giving is a privilege like that. Do you think of it as a privilege? It's not merely a duty. Yes, we're told to give, but it's actually a delight. The God of the universe who needs nothing allows me to be part of his work 
through my giving. Whether it's week by week in our offering, whether it's to particular people that you run into who are in need, whether it's through our benevolence fund that we take every month, whether it's once a year in a special offering like the offering of praise. By the way, if you were at the banquet, you knew that uh, I announced we, were, we had taken something like, uh, the Lord had provided something like $36,000. We were short of our goal. Well, today I stand here to tell you that the Lord has provided another $11,000 since then, that we are at $47,000 and we we have exceeded our goal. Isn't that wonderful? That's great. What a privilege to be able to give to that, to be able to participate in God's work like that. So God calls for a contribution, and then he gives instructions. And now this is the point where I have to tell you that some of you are going to be very disappointed in the rest of this sermon. And you may be thinking to yourself, what's new? All right? But... You may be quite disappointed because I'm not going to go into every intricate detail that could, every bit of this could be, you could do a biblical theology on every one of these pieces. And I'm not going to do that. What I want to do is instead to convince you that everything here is purposeful and has the same message. God dwells with his people. So, there'll be a very crude little uh, picture up here as we walk through these items, just so you can see where they'd be approximately, right? But we're going to start at the heart of the tabernacle and work our way out. And in the most holy place, the holy of holies, in the middle of it all is the Ark of the Covenant. Now, that's described in chapter 25, verses 10 to 22, but this is where God will meet with His people. This is where God will receive atonement for sin. This is actually, God says, it's where He will speak to His people from this place. It is a reminder of God's presence. And really, when you think about it, it's a reminder of God's presence as king. Because when they set up camp, if you've looked at this before, do you remember where the tabernacle with the ark is meant to be? Right in the middle. Do you know who camps in the middle? The king does. And when they move, the ark is to lead them out. And do you know who leads his people when they go? The king. God is with them as their king. But it is always hidden from sight. Very, very few people would have ever seen the ark itself. The high priest once a year, and then those who were assigned the duty to cover it so that they might pack up and move. Why? Because in, in, in the end, the, the Israelites were to believe that God was with them by faith and not by sight. But it's always out of sight. They travel, it's covered. When they camp, it's behind a veil that's embroidered with cherubim. Now, in the minds of many people, cherubs are basically fat toddlers with wings. <laughs> Chubby toddlers with wings is not what the Bible means by cherub. Here's some homework. Read Ezekiel chapter 1. And you will find that cherubim are actually terrifying creatures. 
They are terrifying. Why would God put a chubby toddler with a flaming sword outside the Garden of Eden? That would be ridiculous. It is this fierce cherubim, these fierce cherubim with the flaming sword that guarded. And here they are woven into the veil, guarding the way in. And they're actually on, the mercy, uh, on top of the mercy seat with their wings extended, bowing down, as it were, before the throne of God, which the Bible says God is enthroned above the cherubim, above the mercy seat. They bow. So this ark is the reminder that God himself, God's royal kingly presence is always with them. Think about that. They never have to wonder who's in charge because the king is there. The king is with them. Next, you go outward into the holy place. And the first thing you come across after you come out of the Holy of Holies is the altar of incense. And that's outside the realm of our uh, reading. That's in chapter 30. But there were no offerings made there, but smoke rises from it as a picture of of, of the prayers of God's people rising to the heavens. Psalm 141 captures this when when it says, let my prayer be counted as incense before you. When you get to Revelation 5, there's a golden bowl full of incense, which is the prayers of the saints rising. God is with his people and God listens to his people. How sweet is that? How sweet, I mean, it's interesting, this altar had to be cleansed, there had to be blood put on it, atonement had to be made, why? Because we don't know how to pray, and even our prayers are sinful. We pray with wrong motives, we pray wrongly, we pray at the wrong time, we pray the wrong thing, we do all of that, but the blood still cleanses it and our prayers still rise to heaven. Isn't that wonderful? The next thing you see is a table for bread. What's called the showbread or the bread of the presence. Twelve loaves would sit on it. And these would be changed out every week. As a reminder that they have table fellowship with God. God set his table to include them. Last week we saw it, right? Chapter 24, verse 11, there's this crew representing the people and they, 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 in God's presence they behold God and they eat and drink. And this is a reminder that this is what God has done. God has opened up his table. God has made a place at the table for you. God has made a place at the table for his people so that we're not just his servants, we're his family. We can come to the table. Isn't that wonderful? And then you get to the lampstand. There's seven lights burning on this thing. Fire speaks of God's presence. Think about it, the burning bush. Remember that? Think about the fire that's there on the mountain. Think about the pillar of fire that leads them at night. And this lamp wasn't to be put out. It was to burn. The priests were responsible to make sure it kept burning. 
Now listen, if you drive around tonight, you know, it's getting darker early and earlier. It's 7.30, let's say, which it's already dark outside at 7.30. And you're driving through a neighborhood and you're driving past all these houses and porch lights are on, living room lights are on, lamps are on, bedroom lights are on. And then there's one house where all, it's just flat out dark. You know what you immediately think? There ain't nobody there. Right? Now, in the days of burning lights... You can't just go to bed, right? You and I may leave a porch light on all night. We may leave a night light on somewhere, but you don't leave lights on when it's fire. So the cooking fires would be put out. The household lamps would be put out. And everyone would go to sleep. Now, I want you to picture this. The whole camp... Obviously, the stars are above, but the whole camp is cloaked in darkness except for one place, the middle. Because God's still at home and God never sleeps. His light never needs to be put out. John mentioned in his prayer people walking through dark places. You know what? On your darkest day, you know what you need to remember? You need to remember this lampstand that burned in the darkest, darkest of nights. And remember that even though you may not know what God is doing, you can know that God is there and that he is not asleep. He is not taking a nap. He has not pulled over to a rest area so he can get some rest before he keeps driving the train of the universe. He is still God. He is still there. He is still at work. And then you move out of this enclosed area, which would be about 15 feet tall, into the courtyard, and there is a basin And in the basin, you had to wash your hands and your feet before you could serve the Lord. The priest had to do that. Now, this is actually, in some ways, quite practical, isn't it? Because they would be covered in blood all the time because of the sacrifices. But more, even more than that, one cannot simply come unclean to serve the Lord. You must be clean to be in His presence. You must be clean to serve Him. You must be clean to come in. That's why your grandma always told you to wipe your feet before you came in. She didn't want you tracking dirt in her house. That's why her couches were covered in plastic. Because <laughs> nothing unclean comes in here. And how much more can we not go into God's presence who is clean through and through? We cannot go into his presence dirty. We must be cleansed. Cleansed with water and then cleansed with our, of our sin, which brings us to the last thing, which is the bronze altar. This is where the sacrifices would be made, telling us that the only people who can be in relationship with God are those who are in relationship with him through sacrifice, through atonement. You see, sin 
separates us from God, puts a barrier between us and God, but God mercifully made provision so that before we get to the cleansing, before we get to the, to the conviction that He is there and He's not asleep, before we get to His table, before we come to pray, we must be cleansed. That's the first thing you run into. And God has mercifully made provision for your sin, friend. He does it for Israel. The blood that is shed on that altar will satisfy His wrath and atone for sin, bring them back into relationship together. Now, are you following all that? Every piece points to the reality that God dwells with His people. He makes provision for our sin and washes us clean so that we can come to His table and know He is always there and bring our anxieties and cares before Him and bow beneath Him as King and be ruled under His benevolent rule. This is what the tabernacle communicates. But it doesn't just communicate to Israel at that time because it actually points forward to something that's even greater than a tabernacle. It points to Jesus. You see, in John chapter 1, the Bible says, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word dwelt there, the verb for dwelt, is most literally tabernacled. He tabernacled among us. Jesus is God pitching his tent with humanity. In Jesus, God has come down the mountain. In Jesus, we have a king who sets his table for sinners, who is the very bread of life, who is the light of the world, who offers himself on the altar of the cross to atone for our sin, to satisfy God's wrath, and he cleanses us with the washing of water by his word, and we are made clean. You see, this tabernacle was never just to be about this tabernacle. Because all of the, all of the, the, in the ancient world, all of the tents, uh, sorry, all of the temples that were built were meant to be kind of earthly representations of some, you know, heavenly dwelling that you just can't see. And likewise, the tabernacle is a kind of shadowy copy of God's dwelling place, His true dwelling place. And because Jesus fulfills all that the tabernacle does, we get to enter into that heavenly place. Hebrews 9 says, When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal Redemption. Eternal redemption. <laughs> the 
the ferocious and terrifying cherubim embroidered on the curtain have been dismissed from their guard duty. Because when Jesus dies, the veil is torn in two from top to bottom, opening the way for sinful man to have fellowship, to be cleansed, so that we might have fellowship with a holy God. Friend, we have to stop thinking about how we can make it to God and embrace the fact that in Jesus, God has made his way to us. That the veil is torn, the gate is open, the way is clear in Jesus. Come to Jesus. He is the way. But there's one more thing. You cannot simply come to Jesus however it is you think you ought to come to Jesus. Like I come to Jesus one way and you come to Jesus another way. And we just all love Jesus. Isn't that great? No, the only way we can come to Jesus is on his terms, not on ours. And actually we see this in the tabernacle. Because God says, make me a sanctuary that I may dwell with you. He gives all of these instructions. He tells them the materials to bring, you know, no substitutes. And then all along the way, he reminds them that you will only make a place that I will dwell with you if you do it the way that I say to do it. Chapter 25, verse 9, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so shall you make it. Chapter 25, verse 40 And see that you make them after the pattern for them, which is being shown you on the mountain. Chapter 26, verse 30. Then you shall erect the tabernacle according to the plan for it that you were shown on the mountain. Chapter 27, verse 8, the last sentence. As it has been shown you on the mountain, so shall it be made. Yes, the God of the mountain has come down the mountain, but he is still God. His word is still the final word. His authority is still the final authority. He will dwell with his people, but only on his terms. And it's the same thing when we think about the fact that Jesus fulfills all that the tabernacle pictures. We must come to Jesus the way that God says to come to Jesus, in repentance and in faith. Repentance is a change, a change of mind, an attitude that leads to a change in life. Repentance is not God saying, you change your life and then you come to me. No, no, no. It's just a change of the whole orientation of, of, of my heart and my mind. It will lead to a change of life. But, but, but God is not saying, hey, clean up your act and then you get in. He says, change everything about the way you think about me and respond to me and I'll clean you up. 
Whole attitude changes. Whole mind changes. No longer is God irrelevant. He is the most relevant being in the universe. No longer is his authority easily dismissed. It is the final authority. No longer is his word subject to my opinion, but my life is subject to his word. You see, Jesus did not come simply to be Savior. He is Lord. He is Lord. And that kind of thinking actually changes your life, doesn't it? When everything is revolutionized like that, when God revolutionizes your mind and your heart, everything else will change. Because as a race, humanity is walking away from God, and the only way that we can come to God is actually to turn around. And that's what repentance is. It is the turning. And we must believe Not to simply know what Jesus has done or agree with the facts, but we must trust that Jesus' death is the only way I will ever be made right with God. To bank all of my eternal hopes on His life, His death, and His resurrection for me. And if we do that, if we repent and believe And we'll come to him. He will dwell with us. We'll be forgiven of our sin, cleansed and brought in and sat down at his table. But you have to come on his terms, friend. You can't just dabble in Christianity and take what you like and leave what you don't. Listen. You either come on his terms or you can't come at all. You either come on his terms or you can't and you don't come at all. Would you come on his terms this morning? Would you turn to him in repentance and in faith? He will in no way cast out those who come by faith. And if you're a Christian, as you continue your study of the tabernacle and you think about the tabernacle, friend, don't think of it as a puzzle. Think of it as a portrait of Jesus, of what he's done. And rejoice that the God of the mountain has come down. That in Jesus he's dwelt with us and he's died for us and he's been raised for us. And even now he dwells with us in the person of the Holy Spirit. And one day in the new heavens and the new earth we will dwell with him forever. John sees it in Revelation 21. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. That's a tent you want to be in. Turn to the Lord Jesus and your place in that tent 
is reserved. Let's pray. Father, how we thank you that though you are separate and superior and could rightly leave us to our own demise, you have come down. You have ransomed your people through the blood of your Son. You have made a way for us to know you, to dwell with you, even as you came to dwell with us. Oh, how we thank you that these building plans were written down because they encourage us and strengthen us and help us to remember that you are with us, that you are the king, that you hear our prayers, that you've set a table for us to be at, that your light is always on and you never sleep, that you provide sacrifice and cleanse us from sin. Oh God, help us to revel in these truths, to love them more and more, but more than that, to love you more and more. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you'll stand with me, we're going to sing.